It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition. You know, ordinarily my introductions of my guests, I I try to like make them smaller. They're very accomplished women and men that have done a lot of great things in our (laughs) in their lives. Most of them need no introduction at all. The guest today actually does need an introduction. He needs a fairly lengthy one. (laughs) But his resume Just read it the way I wrote it is wafer thin (laughs) essentially his resume is my name is jason yeah and and i have a podcast called jason in the house by the way have you looked at the average length of your podcast have you looked at the number of minutes your average podcast is yeah it's about 45 no 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 no. it's 56 minutes that's a prison sentence (laughs) Jason, that's not a podcast. That that's a term of imprisonment. In fact, while we were doing criminal justice reform, had I known you would have a podcast, I would have included in criminal justice reform that Jason cannot go past forty-five minutes. <laughs> well, it's just usually it's so engaging, people just can't tear themselves away. I can't. I I I. There's a really good. That's why your number one sponsor is Ambien. <laughs> The the number one sponsor of your podcast. They're so is, riveted by the end of the podcast, they can't go to sleep. That's a good sponsor. Ambient and, and Dreamwater. <laughs> so those are the two main sponsors. Yeah. Uh, all right. I got to ask you this. I've asked you this before. Uh, first of all, welcome. Yeah. Second of all, everyone says this, and it, it makes me sound like an old person, which I have become everyone says oh the old the the old days were better everything's changed to me congress has changed but you got there a little bit before i did but what do you think that does it look the same as what you came into no it has changed you know i think the the biggest change is social media the idea of instagram and facebook and everybody's got a, a phone and a video and a camera at all times i mean it's just you see people sitting on the floor and they're not talking to their colleagues they're like posting up or seeing how many likes they got because they said something. You have staff members jumping in front of their members when they give an opening statement in a hearing to make sure they capture that YouTube moment. That that hasn't really, I don't know, that hasn't really produced anything productive. I, I, I just, uh, it, I, that, that, that was a sea change. I remember I had to get special permission on the floor of the house to use my iPad as sort of a note uh, uh, you know, I was going to make a speech on the floor and I needed some notes. And instead of coming up with the pieces of paper and I came up with an iPad and I get special permission. Now it's so commonplace, but I don't know that social media has made the world of Congress a better place. All right. I want to pick up on that because I think I think you, whether wittingly or unwittingly, put your <laughs> finger on something. I'm going to go with the unwittingly because I've known you for a long time, <laughs> but you put your finger on something. So you became extraordinarily well-known while you were in Congress. But I would argue it was because of your work, your committee work. I mean, you were on judiciary, you were on oversight, you prepped for hearings, you made good, efficient use of your five minutes, you mentioned floor speeches. I would say you became well-known or, dare I say, famous as a byproduct of your work. And one of the three criticisms that I'm going to go through all three of them, but one of them that I have now is that you don't need the hard work to become famous. Fame is a virtue in and of itself now. Yeah. And and it's 
it's sad that way because I had members, I got two members specifically that were on oversight who literally went for two years and never asked a single question. Yet they had one of the biggest social media followings. And I'm just like, guys, you're over there tweeting and putting up Facebook posts and you're opining on things. But when a witness is standing there in front, you don't even ask for time to question them. That's what the job is. It's not to be a reporter, you know, and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing on the front row. Literally, we had two members on the Republican side of the aisle who never asked a question in two years on the oversight committee. I remember it was after you left. Chairman Goodlatte was the chairman of judiciary and Devin had concluded his part of the Russia investigation, but he had some more questions and he wanted to kind of offload those to the judiciary committee because the judiciary committee had oversight right. over DOJ and FBI. So, so good luck came to me because I followed in your footsteps at the oversight committee and said, let's put together a group and let's do these depositions and witness transcript and, and witness interviews. So we had, you know, the usual suspects. You have Jim Jordan because Jimmy works incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. You got you got John Radcliffe. I mean, you, you got the people who would roll up their sleeves. And I remember, Jason, they're in the room with the Comeys of the world, with the Andy McCabe's of the world, with the Peter Strucks of the world actually working. Meanwhile, people who were not picked to work were outside talking to the press. Yeah. Yeah. And so no, so so it, it creates this notion that that the people working are somehow of less value than the people out there talking about what other people are doing. So I don't necessarily blame the members because, you know, I'm a big fan of the ring of Gyges. I think people are, for the most part, not great. I think you also see a little bit of that in like religious scripture too. People, if left to their own devices, are usually going to do the wrong thing. I kind of blame the public for not knowing the difference between Jordan and Radcliffe, who are in there actually working for 10 hours, and some knucklehead from Florida who just steps out in front of a press gaggle and talks about what other people are doing. Yeah, it was always... I, I, mean, I blame the public for that. It's a little frustrating sometimes. You have people that didn't sit in on a transcribed interview or a classified briefing or something, and then they come out and they start opining about it, and you're just like scratching your head like, really? Like, come on. Or we prep the day before a hearing and handing out, you know, hey, who's going to ask what? And we've only got five minutes, and we got to make sure we ask these 15 things of this witness, and then all of a sudden... Somebody comes in, doesn't read the briefing paper, and then asks a stupid, stupid question. And I, I, I don't know. It was, it was frustrating and sometimes terribly embarrassing. But you know, it's probably been a lot like that. I, I kind of left the Congress thinking, you know, it's sort of a third, a third, a third. I think a third of the people that are there in Congress, they just don't have anything else to do. They're kind of retired. They're just like, hey, I got a cool business card and this is a nice job and I'll show up. And they don't really do anything. Then you have another third who are kind of power hungry and fame hungry and they just want the power and the fame and and that's why they're there. But they couldn't tell you what the principles are or why they're really there. And then you have another third that I put you and me and Radcliffe and Tim Scott and others in there like, okay, actually go in there and, and do the work and, you know, trying to actually accomplish something and do something. And there are a lot of good people. And by the way, on both sides of the aisle, there's some good people on the other side of the aisle too. I don't think Republicans have all the answers to everything, but um, that's kind of the way I reflect back on it. Sort of a third, a third, a third. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I want you to reflect back on one other thing. You became a chairperson pretty early in your career, actually. I mean, yeah. it's hard to become the chairperson of a committee. It's hard. But but you did it. You had to make a presentation before the steering committee, and they had to pick you. It now looks to me, when I look at Capitol Hill, that being a chairperson has almost zero positive benefit. That you have all the consequences of whatever decisions are made or not made, but 
I just wonder, I mean, it, that was like a highly coveted thing that you had earned the respect and honor of your colleagues and they were going to elevate you to the chairmanship. You may or may not want to tell the story. You may not want to tell the story. But early on in your chairmanship, you did what chairmen are supposed to do, which is get the troops to to kind of pull in the same direction, all the mules pulling the same cart in the same direction. It just doesn't seem worth the trouble now anymore. Tell oh, me, why, I why would you want to be a chairperson when you can just go be an Instagram star? Well, I, I don't... I, I'm not as pessimistic about that as as you are. Look, when I first got there, I I had fiscal discipline, limited government accountability, and a strong national defense. That's what I that's what I told the voters in Utah that I was going to do. Adhere to the Constitution, do those four things, and we'd be off to the races. Well, when I started thinking about accountability, it became real evident that the Oversight Committee had jurisdiction on anything. It could investigate anything anywhere, and I thought, that's the committee for me. And when I went to the leadership of the Republican Party at the time, John Boehner, Eric Canner, and those folks, and I said, look, I, I want it, it, oversight as my number one and they came back and they said jason nobody asked for oversight as number one and i said well i do and i remember john boehner told me he said listen do oversight that's great after two years come back and uh, let's discuss this again and i said and he said you can have any committee you want any committee you want you want appropriations you want any of these coveted ones you can have anything i'm just impressed with your work ethic and i said i'm still putting oversight as number one he said you are literally the only person in the republican conference who has this as their number one and i said well i'm going to keep it as my number one because i want to chair this committee and he said you're smart because nobody else is doing that and so yeah i became a chairman after three terms. I think it was only the fifth time in a hundred years. And I, I, it goes to the adage, I believe, that focus determines reality. And I actually wrote up a 75-page plan on what we would do and how we would do it and how we would organize and, and where we would focus. And when I went into the steering committee, there were a couple of people that had like a page or two of, hey, here's a PowerPoint in two pages. And I had a 75 page bound book of what I was going to do. And people are like, wow, you know, he seems to want it more than anybody else. Let's give it to him. And now James Comer told me it is the number one most requested committee that they have in the conference. And I, I, I give a lot of credit to you and the other people that were on that committee who, who actually did some really good work. Like Ron DeSantis was on our committee um, and he did a lot of good work. He would prepare for things and ask very pointed questions with his legal background. You were probably the, I hate to say this on your show, you were one of the best and it, it it showed and people saw it and they, they were watching C-SPAN and they were watching Fox and, and other shows and, and made, I think it made a real difference. And consequently people ran for Congress and said, Hey, I want to be on that committee. That sounds like, you know, the kind of stuff I want to do. God, I wish I had your optimism. I really do. I, I really, I sit there, I, I, I say the same thing about my wife. I marvel at her optimism and hopefulness and lack of cynicism. And I marvel at yours because you and I agree on the facts. Ronnie was a very bright member of the Oversight Committee. Mm -hmm. He's also on judiciary with us. Yeah. And when he was engaged, he was a very, very smart guy. Really good questioner. We had others too, uh, John Lee Radcliffe, uh, Jimmy. But but see, what I think people saw was Ron DeSantis became the governor of Florida. Right. John Radcliffe became the DNI. Jimmy Jordan is a household name. I don't think it was that seventy-five page binder that you came up with to address the Paper Reduction Act. Right. You remember the hearing we had on the Chemical Safety Board? Oh yeah. Moria Rosso. Yeah, okay. I wasn't even going to go to the hearing. It was so boring. But you <laughs> called me and said, hey, will you come down there and help me? I mean, people are not lining up to go question, you know, Dr. Moria Rosso from the Chemical Safety Board. They're, they are lining up. I'll bet you right now. Well, I think McCarthy, McCarthy did tell me this before he was ousted, that the demand for oversight committee is sky high. Yeah. Yeah, it's not the jurisdiction, I don't think. I think it is they saw certain people become well-known, and that's what they wanted. 
Yeah. They, but that to that point, again, I saw two people on my committee. I'm chairman, and I'm over there looking at You are just an absolute waste of space here. Why did you ask for this committee? It, and it's because they were riding the coattails of good work that you were doing, I was doing, some of those others, Ron DeSantis were doing, Mark Meadows, others were doing. And I'm just like... Uh, how come you, anyway, I've kind of made the point, but you know, and you had people like James Comer, who I think sincerely wants to, to make the country better, who pours his heart and soul into it. And I remember he was a freshman when I was a chairman. He had like the seat way down at the below, but you know, that's the beauty of the representation of, of, uh, you know, that's the way Congress works. That's the way our founders envisioned it. I remember the day he got there um, because I thought, thank God, there's somebody who talks as slowly as I do that's on the (laughs) oversight committee. He's got to be from the South somewhere. Also, remember, there was a there was a subcommittee vacancy. It may have been when Ronnie left to go become governor of Florida, but there was a subcommittee vacancy that had three people that really, really wanted it. And I didn't want to decide between the three, so I made him go in a room and said, when y'all come out, have a chair. I'm not I heard this. about this. <laughs> I heard I said, about this. Oh, my god! And they all looked at me like, what? I said, no, the three of you, we're all colleagues. <laughs> we're all friends. Y'all go into a room, and, and, and you'd pick who would be the best subcommittee chair. I'm not going to do it. I think and they went in, and about 10 minutes later, they came out, and they had a chairperson, which <laughs> raises a point I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. You and I, I wish I had a nickel for every night we went to the Capitol Hill Club to eat dinner because it was within walking distance, and neither one of us had a car, and we both slept in our offices. So we went over there. We got a table. It was either uh, Tim Scott or John Lee Radcliffe or sometimes Mia Sometimes it was just us, but it was a small group. But invariably, colleagues would stop by. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever remember having a colleague stop by. These are Republican colleagues because this is a Republican club. But I don't ever remember having a Republican colleague stop by that you and I had a fractured relationship with. I, I can really only think of one Republican that I did not get along with out of the 230-something colleagues we had. And I can really only think of a couple of Democrats that you and I did not have wonderful relationships with. And it look, when I look now, particularly the fighting on the Republican side, Jason, if you and I were at a restaurant at the Capitol Hill Club, well, you wouldn't because you're Mormon and you wouldn't pull a knife on someone or hit them over the head with a plate. But I'm Southern Baptist, and I probably would. I don't see that anymore. I don't see that collegiality and esprit de corps that used to exist. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that because um, from everybody that I've talked to since I left, when I call and say, hey, how's it going? And they're like, it's just no fun anymore. It's like we just... We just fight amongst ourselves, and it's just a very, very frustrating atmosphere. And I, I bet, you know, through the history of Congress, there have been times like that, but um, I don't think it's necessarily been as bad. And I don't think it's, I don't think that's true on just the Republican side of the aisle. I think that's true with the Democrats as well. I think they're having even more problems that way. I mean, you just had. Rashida Tlaib go out there and say, you know, don't vote for Joe Biden. It's like, yikes. Um, you know, there, there, there's some serious infighting on the Democratic side of the aisle. I, we did get along. We got along very well. I mean, I, I got along with the Democrats on my committee and we had some fairly notorious people over there on the Democratic side of the aisle. But I always, we always seem to get along. And you're right. I think there's a list of one where I was just like, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. But you get 435 people together. Yeah, there's going to be two or three that, yeah, you just don't want to be around. And even back then, very, very, very few Republican colleagues that I just had no desire to have a conversation with or any relationship with. But we kept that private. We didn't like air our disputes over over X or Twitter or whatever it's called now. It just I, yeah, I and some of that does play out 
very aggressively on again it goes back to this whole social media thing it's just sitting there right at the fingertips and instead of taking a deep breath and going over and talking to somebody about their differences i remember one time i stood up in uh you never went to these but in the mornings uh once a week we would have this conference meeting and i what (laughs) exactly and uh you could stand up at the end of the meeting and ask a question and i stood up and asked an appropriations question. Now, I'd only been in Congress like a term or two, and I was still confused by what they were trying to do. So I asked this question, and somebody in the back, I know exactly who it is, like called out, like, what a stupid question or something like that. And I went back to that person, I sat down to him, and I said, you know, I asked a very sincere question, and I did it publicly, and I didn't do it, I did it in front of our colleagues in what is supposed to be a closed-door room with the family, so to speak, and I didn't try to backstab anybody, I didn't whisper about it, I actually stood up and asked the question out loud, because I really wanted to know that answer, you know, you shouldn't have called me out like that, and he apologized, I think he felt stupid about it, and you know what, it was a really good moment where I think... I did the right thing. I think he did the right thing. And, you know, that heat came off the table and everybody felt better about it. And we didn't leave with animosity. It's a, it's the same in personal relationships. You know, you make mistakes. Somebody misunderstands. Maybe you say something a little aggressively. Um, but some of those lessons get lost. And I think they get lost on a generation that grows up on social media. I'm still marveling at the fact that anybody could get you even like remotely animated because <laughs> of all the times I was around you, I think I saw you, I would say, I never saw you mad. I saw you disappointed on the verge of frustration. One time you probably don't even remember this. We're walking back from the Capitol Hill club. You're the chair, Elijah Cummings, uh, God rest his soul. whom both of us liked very much personally. Mm-hmm. Um, it sent you kind of a late night letter or email or something that just didn't sit right. I, I think it was a surprise. Oh, yeah. yeah, It was more disappointment that we don't do this to each other. We don't do it at 11 o'clock at night. We don't leak it to the media before that. That's just not that's not the way things are supposed to be done. Other than that, Jason, I never saw you lose your temper. Well, with a single I did person the whole time we were together. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, the, the one time I really, like my staff had to say, okay, you need to take deep breath, was when I was talking to one of the staffers there for uh, Hillary Clinton. And he was the epicenter of the document production. And I really, like I got to the point where I, I surprised myself. And I told him, I said, you need to look in the mirror what, you, what your life's all about. You're... You are destroying this country. If you think your job is to just, you you work for the American people. You're supposed to do what's right, you know, and this is a duly issued subpoena. I was not saying it as clearly. Ryan Pagliano? um, No, because he was the IT specialist who didn't ever show up. I never did get to talk to him. This was another person who people would recognize. And I I, finally, my staff said, all right, Chairman, maybe we should... uh, Maybe we should just calm down here a little bit. <laughs> and he was right. I, I, that's the only time I really felt like I, but I was so incredibly frustrated. And we had four dead Americans, and and it, it, what they were doing was just so totally wrong. And um, and you know, I just the other time that I got a little out of my skin was the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, surprisingly. It was a classified briefing. I can't get into the details of it, but it was also about Benghazi. And I I told him at the end, very aggressively, I said, you know, sir, with all due respect, the fact that I'm a Republican congressman from Utah and I know more about what happened that night than you did is just a shame. You should be embarrassed. You're the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. How could you not know? And then I laid out some facts and uh, I really laid into him. And I thought, you know what, this is this is part of the process, but I probably could have done it with a little bit more calmness and respect. Um, but I was I was I was mad because people died, and um, I don't know. And in your partial defense, um, you went to Libya way, way, way before anybody else did. Yeah. You you yeah. Were, you were actually talking about what happened in Tripoli and Benghazi way before it became 
politically advantageous to talk about it. So, uh, which leads me to a question about the speaker. Uh-huh. Because uh, I remember going in and asking the then speaker. Um, he had certain people he was going to put on the select committee, and then, but he didn't have it fully laid out. And I remember begging him to put you on that committee. Not not just because I loved you, not just because you were one of my best friends, but because of your institutional knowledge and the fact that you've been carrying the water on that for so long. But let's move on beyond that. All right. Speaker, third in line for the presidency. But I would argue, and um, did you and Mike overlap? You and Mike Johnson, were you all there together? Yeah. Yeah. He was on judiciary okay. with, us, with us. Yeah. Yeah. I loved him. Smart, smart, well-prepared, humble young man. Exactly. Um, Great guy. I would say he, wonderful guy, wonderful guy. I would say he's not in the top three most influential members of the House. I would say he's not in the top three most influential members of the so-called Republican Party or so-called conservative movement. So how did we get? from someone our founders thought was significant enough to be third in line to be the president. But we now live in a culture where, because he's not like super fluid on super, on social media, and he doesn't call people names, and he I don't know that I've ever heard him like try to belittle someone. <laughs> I've never heard Mike try to do that. So you're, you have positional power or authority, but in reality, there are people on the station you and I work for on Fox News who have much more influence over voters in the Republican Party and the conservative movement than the Speaker of the House. So how did we get there? I actually, I, you know, the more I've reflected on this, I think it's actually uh, refreshing. Um, there was a while there I thought, OK, whoever they're going to select, if they're not going to go with uh, Kevin McCarthy and they're going to do it's probably going to be somebody outside the body who has no skeletons, no animosity towards anybody. And and I think where they ended up was who's going to be the most fair, who's going to be a decent, honest person who has a conservative heart, a conservative leaning, a conservative bent to them, but will be. Uh, honest and fair in how they do this. Not who's raised the most money, not who's made the most noise as a in a committee, not who's most prevalent on social media, not who's a committee chairman. No, no, no nobody's been here the longest. I think where the body ultimately ended up with is let's pick somebody who will be fair, decent, and honorable. And I'd like to see more of that in politics. I I I think that. That should prevail. And so I think of all the people back, I think, you know what? That's a pretty darn good selection because he, he'd only been there a couple of terms. I don't know that it had ever happened in, in the, the history of the Congress. But, you know, you hear about these stories like uh, President Garfield. If you read about him and how he ended up getting the nomination, he didn't want the nomination. He didn't seek the nomination. But after, I can't remember, 40 plus something ballots, they ended up nominating him. He's like, no, I don't want to even be that person. That tends to be appealing. And I and I think he's thriving because of it. it I, I don't know how you manage that group with, you know, two seat majority at this point. I thought Garfield was a cat. Well, he's also a cat, but I'll I'll send you a book. He was also a president. Okay. Like in our lifetime? No. <laughs> no. 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 When were you? How old are you? You I know you're older than you look and I just turned 102. Yeah. <laughs> the Nostradamus references are real for you. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. I want to ask you about a couple of things that you're not going to want to talk about. But people ask me and I get tired. I mean, honestly, I get tired of people asking me about you because I'd rather talk about myself than talk about you. <laughs> That's true. So I find it <laughs> I find it very tiring when people call me and say, hey, is Jason going to run for Senate in Utah? Is Jason going to run for governor of Utah? Is Jason going to move to Guam and try to become a benevolent dictator? I, I just... <laughs> I actually get the third one more than more than I used to. You've been gone. You seem happy. I mean, it's impossible to turn on Fox without seeing you on someone's show. Clearly, you are 
loved and respected by the powers that be. You you guest host all the time. So do you ever get the itch to go back? Uh, I do miss the work. I do the um the interaction and i i really like the work but you and i we've talked about what paul ryan said you know i i really like doing this but i love my family more and uh, you know my my i ultimately left and i left in the middle of a term because my life was out of balance it's just like you know i was chairman i was doing the international stuff i was trying to raise money i had to raise money for the nrcc i tried to help members i was trying to help myself i was and i was home maybe four days a month. And I just thought, you know, I missed so much of my kids growing up. I, when you love your wife and adore your kids, you just like, you know what, get in, serve and get out. And I think you did it right. I think I did it right. It's different for different people. But I worry about the people that stay there in perpetuity. I just don't, I don't think it's healthy. I think that's sort of the George Washington admonition, you know, get in there. And then, you know what, you, you may have a powerful position, but go back and you know, tend the farm, so to speak, at at your own place. So, yeah, would I maybe do? I've talked about maybe running for governor, but four years from now, like maybe, but maybe not. You know, um, there's other parts of my life that interest me, and not just you know being omnipresent and talking about all the issues. Although I do appreciate Fox because I get a pretty big megaphone and get to talk about things I really care about and that I actually know about. All right, I want to ask you. Two more questions. I want to. Uh, speaking of Fox, I want to give you a chance. I mean, I've, I've got my own list, but you're my guest, and I'll I'll give you my list when I'm a guest on your podcast. But colleagues at Fox that helped you become what you are, because you, n- neither one of us have a background in broadcasting. We don't have a background in television or podcasts. I mean. You were a successful businessman, and then you were involved in government in Utah, and then you ran for Congress. And then the next thing you know, you're trying to figure out what SOT means in a teleprompter. Right, right, right. So, uh, I mean, are there, when you look back, are there, I mean, I, I, I'll throw a name like, like Dana Perino is, is like someone that I will forever be indebted to for just guidance and advice. So, who helped you? Um, very helpful on day one was Jay Wallace, who's uh, president around here. Pretty important name. He's behind the scenes. but in, And uh, I sat down with him and I said, I don't know what I don't know, so tell me what I need to know. And he said, I just want you to be authentic. Tell us exactly what you're thinking. Don't You don't have to praise the president. You don't have to be critical of the president. You, you We're never going to tell you what to say or how to say it. We, just, we hired you because we want your authenticity and we want your perspective. You may surprise us. We um, may be predictable, but just you be you. And that was probably the most uh, important advice, just in terms of perspective. And I don't have to second guess what is management thinking or what do they want me to say like that? I wasn't, get, I would never do that anyway, but to have them say that on day one was very refreshing. The two names in terms of how to thrive and do well at Fox, I, I would put Sean Hannity right there, probably at the top of the list. I talked to Sean a lot. I talked to Sean Hannity a lot before I came to Fox, but he's become such a good friend, and he, the guy never sleeps. He's like the hardest working person. It's unbelievable how how late he will call, and I'm two hours earlier in Utah, and just his friendship and his perspective and um, knowledge about how this place works. I mean, he's been the host of a primetime show for, what, 25, 26 years, longer than anybody else in television, period. He does, like he does three hours, hours of radio, radio, and then he comes and does an hour of television, and it's, uh, it's, unbelievable, it's unbelievable what he does. Yeah, it's but, unbelievable. But he's such a nice and genuine and loyal person. Um, the other one that's been really helpful is uh, Bill Hemmer. Hemmer does his homework. I mean, when he goes to the so-called billboard in, on election night and he's talking about this county and that county, he's doing I remember one time he had me come in and he said, all right, test me. And, um, and he was like literally working to make sure that I could throw him any question and, and, and he would be able to tell and point on a map. I mean, 
the guy works so hard and he's so smart and he's super nice guy. I love talking sports with him and, and, and doing all that. But then every once in a while he'll throw this gem of a, you know, here's what I've learned. And he's just been a good friend and he's been very helpful and he's one of the most successful people on television. He's just a good guy. I could go on. Harris Faulkner has been really good to me. Uh, There's so many people. I don't have... There were maybe a couple people at the beginning when I got here, but they've all kind of been flushed out. I I kind of get along with just about anybody. Steve Ducey's been real helpful. I I, I can't thank them all enough. You mentioned Jay Wallace. Um, I actually call him Mister Wallace. I, I do not call him <laughs> Jay Wallace. But I, you 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 picked up on something that is one of the more common misconceptions. I've had a couple of conversations with him, but they've all been exactly what you just said, which is authenticity. No one has ever said you cannot have this guest or you must have this guest. No one has ever said you cannot talk about this or you must talk about this. The notion, I mean, like when we were in the house, they would send around talking points. Right. All right. This is what you're supposed to talk about this day. Now, neither one of us ever did it. But but there were talking points. There are no talking points at Fox News. No no one says you have to do this, that, or the other. I've had some guests on that probably have not been on any other show before. And no one's ever blinked an eye. Just be honest, be authentic, be real. You mentioned Sean. I actually met him 20 years ago. I, they asked me to give him a ride. Well before he became a household name, give him a ride when he flew to Spartanburg for a speaking engagement. And I actually I saw him in either Iowa or New Hampshire this month. I mean, uh, this this year, right. uh, maybe maybe this month. And I reminded him of that. I picked him up at the airport. He had forgotten his toothbrush. So I'm nervous. I figure, you know, I need to take him to a, like a really nice Walgreens or CVS or. You know, maybe take him to the Colgate factory somewhere so we can get him. So he goes, not just a gas station. If you can just like run me by a gas station so I can get a toothbrush. And Jason, he is not one bit different today than he was 20 years ago. Not one bit different. Hemmer, I want to say one more thing about Hemmer. One of the more fascinating conversations I have had on this podcast was with Bill Hemmer. I mean, yeah, he's a computer whiz. He knows the name of more counties in your state than you do. All of that is true. Sports nut, which is he was the Cincinnati Bengals play-by-play guy and would be good at it. But that guy has had an incredible life. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you mentioned all of those. I, I want to I ask you one one more thing before I let you go. What have you not done that you wished you had? And if you had to do it all over again in terms of running, you ran against an incumbent, which is difficult. Right. It's a challenge. You left before people wanted you to leave, which is you know probably better to jump than to be pushed. But would you do anything differently? Well, you know what? It's interesting because all the hard things that you go through are the parts that build your character and you either walk out stronger, smarter, better, um, then, or, or it just eats you up. I, you, you can't be so self-critical of yourself that, um, you, you have, you know, doubts and it keeps you up at night. Uh, I think fortunately I learned along the way, the, f- the few times where maybe people misunderstood or I made a flat out mistake. One time on the air, I made a mistake. I thought I was doing a joke that was funny and it wasn't. And somebody was like offended by it. And I took days to apologize multiple times. I felt so bad. And finally, that person came up and said, listen, I, I sense your sincerity. Stop beating yourself up. 
Um, it was a mistake. Let's move on. And they were so nice and gracious about it. But at the time, I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. I can guarantee you that wasn't Lindsey Graham because he would have <laughs> held it over your head for like 20 years. And maxim- <laughs> he would have maximized your guilt for 20 years. Oh, I know. I, I'm trying to wrestle with the fact that you would say something that offended someone. I've never heard you do that. I was trying to make a joke, and it just uh, did well, not. Yeah, It just did not land the way i wanted it to so um i I feel bad i guess for the you know my constituents i didn't um you know i left in the middle of a term and um people have left before people leave again um should i have ridden it out for another year and a half i just you know i told the voters i put my family first and that we were especially in utah families are are so important and um i could have stayed another year and a half because uh, i was elected to do so and i felt bad that uh, that i did leave but i also know it was the right choice because the last year and a half with my uh daughter going through as a junior and senior in high school i would have missed all that and i'd missed pretty much everything since first or second grade so um you know, it was the right decision for me. Was it the? It was. It was the one time I felt like I was probably the most selfish. Um, and after eight and a half years, you know, you you. It's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of service, which is what you sign up to do, and it's very gratifying that way. But I I still feel a tinge of guilt that I did leave early. I understand why it was the right decision for me and my family, but. Yeah, I kind of wish the timeline had, had had coalesced around the same my departure and and my need to be more with my family. It just, but it didn't. Well, selfishly, I wish you had stayed too because um, I spent as much time with you, particularly after Tim went to the Senate. I spent as much time with you as I did anyone, and it was it was um, it just was different when you left, but. I met all three of your children. If it makes you feel any better, they all turned out really, really phenomenally well. So uh, that would be Julie's influence and your absence, I guess. The, <laughs> yeah. the two combined together <laughs> to produce three really good children. So I wouldn't beat myself up too much. I mean, God only knows what would have happened if you'd been home. Hey, you know what? I just became a grandfather for like the fifth time. I got five grandkids. That is unbelievable. No kidding. No kidding. Five and one more on the way. I got I'll, I'll have six by, you know, July 4th. Uh, just out of curiosity, what does the governorship of Utah pay? Oh, not is nearly. It, is it enough to buy Christmas presents for six grandchildren? Uh, probably not. Uh, it, you make a good healthy salary. It's free housing. They have a governor's mansion. So, um, I, I don't know. You do it because of the service and I, you know, making some good money right now. I do, you know, I do Fox, but I do it part time. I do, you know, do other things, too. So, um, yeah, I, the, the governor of South Carolina, I think I could be wrong now, but it, I think it paid ninety seven five, which is far and away less than any other. I mean, I, I, I the district attorney. The district attorney in the county where I live makes $200,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. And the governor, unless they've changed it, made half of that. So well, you got to go talk to Nathan I, Wade. He's got a pretty good gig going, evidently. So maybe, you, you know, can... I, I saw him last week and you'll understand I really don't want to trade places with him <laughs> for, for, for many, many, many reasons. <laughs> but I, I don't. No, I love I love what you I love what you texted me. I I was trying to get your attention because the person that was examining, you know, was doing the uh, probing the questions. I just didn't understand. Like, maybe you can answer this for me. I just don't know why attorneys can't just say, when did you first physically have a relationship with Fanny? Like, did y'all like, are you attracted to her? When, when did this first start happening? They were asking all these different questions and I had some questions, but uh, I I texted you, this is verbatim. Okay. I text you, Nathan Wade is on the stand in the Fanny Willis case. And I was talking about the, the person who was asking the question. She is very average in her questioning to which you responded. 
You have been spoiled. You watched what many people consider to be the Rembrandt of prosecutors in action. Everything else is finger painting by a blind monkey, which <laughs> I could not stop laughing. I thought, yeah, there's my humble friend, Trey Gowdy, <laughs> a blind monkey finger painting. That was quite the and it didn't take you but eight seconds to respond. Okay. First of all, um, I'm not admitting that I sent that text. Uh, if I did send that text, it was with an expectation of privacy that it would not be read on a podcast. Thirdly, um, I did not refer to myself as Rembrandt. There was there was an article when I left the DA's office that referred to me as Rembrandt. Oh, you mean the one that's framed above your bed? Yes, that one. Uh, I had to look up who Rembrandt was. I thought it was a toothpaste. I didn't realize I was an artist. But it is also a toothpaste. Who has Rembrandt toothpaste? That is old school. How many tubes did you buy? They don't even sell Rembrandt toothpaste, do they? Maybe they do in South Carolina. You are jealous that I remember it. And that you do not. <laughs> that, I remember that, that's it the now. Source of your anger right now. <laughs> now I know why all those people at Fox got mad at you about your joke because you you got angry because I remember a toothpaste that you don't. By the way, I'm going to go back and find some of your old texts, and I will devote the next hour of my podcast to reading them. Now, because you're Mormon, there's no profanity. There's nothing even like remotely funny in them, but I'm going to do it anyway. Hey, when are you going to get here? That's the sum total of usually what I'm like. I thought we were coming on together. Like, uh, yeah, I do. It, it, well, you 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 walk slowly and think slowly and talk slowly. So, I, and I look. My wife tells me all the time that patience is a virtue, but to me, it's really overrated. There are like a lot. Of, there are a lot of virtues that mean more to me than patience. So. Here's what I learned, that I'm not going to wait until you get there to order. Well, I just wanted to get to the buffet. That, this was a buffet. That was one of the best things about the Capitol Hill Club. I think I actually don't think it was a buffet. I think you turned it into a buffet. <laughs> and, and then after we would eat, you would run by a place called The Good Stuff to get what you called, quote, dessert. After you had three or four oh, chocolate their chip French cookies. Fries. Their French fries were awesome. I, but you also got something else. I mean, how could you... You were a college athlete 20 years ago, but not anymore. Well, and so you would eat supper for like a small village, and then you would stop by a place <laughs> called The Good Stuff. Yeah, they had some chocolate shakes and French fries that just... To wash it down at the cap off an evening, that was the best way to go. <laughs> so we could go back and sleep on our couches in the office. God, how how glamorous with life in Congress. Well, I will say this as much as it pains me to say it, particularly after I mean, I shared something with you that was very personal to me. The fact that a reporter referred to me as Rembrandt in the courtroom. I've only said that to maybe ten or 20,000 other people. <laughs> and for you to publicize that on a podcast, I mean, I, it, it has a chilling effect on me. I'm not going to be able to send you any more text or clips from old newspaper articles. Oh, I have but such a... Admit, it was pretty funny. It, it was <laughs> funny. And the questioning wasn't that good. And But, I, I, you know, you were too busy to actually take my call. And but, No, no, you know. no, no, no. I, I, I wasn't watching. Okay? I wasn't watching. I'd forgotten that the hearing was on. Oh, it was it was riveting television. It actually was I good. I flipped it on, and, and, and I couldn't watch it. Something else was going on that day. Wasn't that Friday? Um, I think it was, was it Thursday? Thursday. But anyway, you, I, I'm going to do a podcast 
on the Jason and the House podcast. And we're going to talk about good prosecutors, bad prosecutors, and what attorneys do and don't do, because I just simply did not understand why they have to, you know, 700 times ask, like, just ask a more basic, simple question that doesn't have much wiggle room instead of trying to dance all around and ask 700 different ways. It just drove me nuts. Jason, have you ever had a job where you were paid by the hour? <laughs> yes, when I worked at the General Cinema Corporation, ripping tickets no, no, and popping I mean, popcorn, no, cleaning well, theaters. You, you, you got an hourly wage, but have you ever had a job where it rewarded you to take longer to do something? No. I mean, most jobs, we want to be efficient. We want to get it done as quickly as possible. <laughs> Not law. Yeah. If I can ask this question eight different ways and get and get paid by the hour, then I'm going to ask it eight different ways. Yeah. We're going to have a pot. We're going to have to have a discussion about this. I, I Mike Lee's father uh, is was Rex Lee. He's since passed away a long, a long time ago. He, he had a valiant fight with cancer, but he was also um, the solicitor general for Ronald Reagan. And um, he was also the president of Brigham Young University. Very, very accomplished person. Uh, Kirkland Ellis uh, attorney. And um, I remember... He must be really disappointed if some was on, has only been a United States senator. Yeah, wow, for that, 18 a, years. Yeah, so... Impressive family. Exactly. So I, I once went to um, a speech that he was giving. And he stood up there, you know, as this very accomplished attorney and he said i just think it's very unfair very just it's just wrong that society has condemned an entire you know population a whole a whole workforce of people uh, these why the disparage all of these attorneys just because of 3 or 4 hundred thousand bad apples <laughs> <laughs> Touche. That was good. Yeah. It was good. Why? Why? You know, the 90% have ruined it for the 10% of the rest of us. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard that one too. It's so unfair that 95% of the people have ruined it for the other 5% of us. Exactly. I don't know. It's sad. Uh, I was a lawyer, I was a trial lawyer. Of, of all ter- terrible things. I see you I on the forensic Congress. files. When I'm on these hotel rooms waiting oh, around, yeah. I'll watch forensic files, and every once in a while, Trey Gowdy, age 12, shows up. <laughs> well, you know it's bad. My father, like, he wouldn't introduce me as a trial lawyer because he's a medical doctor, and that, that was, like, incredibly <laughs> embarrassing for him. And he, God knows he wasn't going to introduce me as a member of Congress. So how do you like when you introduce your child to someone, what do you say? Because he wasn't going to touch either one of those. And now I'm in the media. Media doesn't poll terribly well. So golfer just says he married my daughter-in-law. Yeah, that's usually how he introduces me. (laughs) Married my daughter-in-law. Yes, (laughs) that's probably the best lead you got. That's you know what? He's right. Smart man. That's the that's the best thing you got going for you. It is. Anybody who knows or knows it is the best thing I have going for me. All right. I cannot tell you how much I wish this had been Julie Chaffetz and not Jason Chaffetz that I was talking to today. But I wish you all the best with your podcast, Jason in the House. Average length of time is the same amount of time it takes to walk from here to Tierra del Fuego in the southern tip of South America. So if you're thinking about walking down there, you might be able to squeeze in two of his podcasts while you walk. Well, thanks for having me on this very short, quick podcast. I do appreciate it. Thanks, Trey. (laughs) You take care of yourself, and I'll see you all next week. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.